1: CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. CISA and NSA warn of a foreign threat to U.S. critical infrastructure— A look at what the bears have been up to lately. Garmin goes down for undisclosed reasons. The Blackbaud extortion incident shows its ripple effects. An awful lot of Twitter employees had access to powerful admin tools. China orders a U.S. consulate closed in a tit-for-tat response to the closure of China's consulate in Houston. Andrea Little Limbago on Cyber in a Reglobalized World System. Our guest is Dominique Shelton Leipzig from Perkins Cole LLP on the California Consumer Privacy Act. And DJI drones may be a bit nosy. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your Cyberwire summary for Friday, July 24th, 2020. A joint warning from the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency and the National Security Agency points out a heightened cyber threat to the industrial Internet of Things. Recent months, the agencies say, have seen significantly increased attention paid to Internet-accessible operational technology assets as cyber actors have demonstrated their continued willingness to conduct malicious cyber activity against critical infrastructure. Operators of such systems should be ready, CISA and NSA say, to protect themselves during a time of crisis. The agencies don't name names in their warning, but the media have. Wired, in a representative piece, calls out Fancy Bear, Russia's military intelligence service, the GRU, as the cyber actor snuffling at U.S. critical infrastructure. The campaign has apparently been in progress for the better part of a year, which suggests that it's in its reconnaissance and battle space preparation phase. The alert warns that the agencies have seen an increase in email spear phishing attacks, aimed at gaining access to critical infrastructure networks with the aim of pivoting into OT systems. They've also seen ransomware attempts against such systems, And ransomware is both disruptive in itself as well as affording an opportunity for information theft. CISA and NSA recommend a set of actions operators should take to become harder targets. Many of them are solid advice at any time, like their recommendations to develop and exercise resilience and incident response plans and to disconnect devices from the Internet that don't need to be connected to it. Some of them, however, including the most urgent recommendations, may be less familiar. For example, quote, create an accurate as operated OT network map immediately, for example, and the related, understand and evaluate cyber risk on as operated OT assets. Take phishing. It's not an advanced technique. Anyone can do it, and do it they will, from the high end operators back at the aquarium to the grubby grifter living on pizza and Mountain Dew in his parents' basement. It's troubling, though, when nation-states are involved. Their reach is far greater, their timing and coordination are more damaging, and they can be far more patient and focused than the proverbial skid with a fishing kit. CISA and NSA say in their warning, It is important to note that while the behavior may not be technically advanced, it is still a serious threat because the potential impact to critical assets is so high. The good news is that sound hygiene and attention to basics go a long way toward helping targets stay safe. Check out the warning and read the whole thing. We note, by the way, that Fancy Bear isn't the only Russian threat actor in the news lately. Warnings in the UK, seconded by Five Eyes colleagues, have also called attention to the activities of Cozy Bear, Fancy's quieter and more demure sister, a unit of Russia's SVR Foreign Intelligence Service. The Daily Swig has an overview of what Cozy's been up to lately, besides poking into COVID-19 research. The consequences of the Blackbaud hack have spread to more universities and not-for-profits in the UK, Canada, and the US. The BBC gives the following list of known victims. The University of York, Oxford Brooks University, Loughborough University, the University of Leeds, the University of London, the University of Reading, University College Oxford, Ambrose University in Alberta, Canada, Human Rights Watch, Young Minds, the Rhode Island School of Design in the U.S., and the University of Exeter. Blackbaud, which serves educational and not-for-profit organizations, stressed to the BBC that not all of its users have been affected, and indeed the BBC confirmed that University College London, Queen's University Belfast, and University of the West of Scotland, Islamic Relief, and Prevent Breast Cancer were not affected. Blackbaud has been criticized for paying ransom in exchange for the attacker's assurance that they'll destroy the stolen information. An apparently unverifiable promise on the part of criminals seems to many to be grounds more for despair than for hope. So, hey everybody, here's a riddle for you. How many Twitter employees and contractors does it take to hand your account over to someone else? Ah! Just one. Okay, so it's not a very good joke, not particularly funny, but it's an interesting question how many employees and contractors had access to internal tools that would enable them to change account settings and give control of those accounts over to someone other than the owner. Reuters says it was more than a 1,000, which is a lot of points of human failure. Twitter's CEO Jack Dorsey said in an earnings call yesterday that everyone at Twitter feels terrible about last week's hack. We fell behind, the Washington Post quotes him as saying, both in our protections against social engineering of our employees and restrictions on our internal tools, end quote. It seems that Twitter didn't see it coming, and the question investors and others will ask is, should they have? China orders the U.S. consulate in Chengdu shuttered. Reuters reports in response to the U.S. closure of China's Houston consulate. Such a move had been widely expected. The only unknown was which city's consulate would be the one to go. Concerns mount over the risk of data exposure through Chinese-manufactured DJI drones, CyberScoop and others write. The concern is that DJI's smartphone interface— could capture data from users' phones and transfer them to Chinese intelligence and security services. There's no particular evidence that DJI has done this, but it's pretty clearly possible, and Sino-American cyber relations are clearly in a state where no one is prepared to accept absence of evidence as evidence of absence. My guest today is Dominique shelton Leipzig. She's a partner at the Perkins Coy LLP Law Firm and co-chair of the firm's AdTech Privacy and Data Management Team. The firm is headquartered in Los Angeles, so when it comes to the California Consumer Privacy Act, it's fair to say that they are in the middle of it.
2: The CCPA, as of January 1st, 2020, ushered in eight new rights for California residents. Three of those have to do with the right to know. In other words, California residents can know uh, what data a company has collected about them and the purposes for the collection going back a year prior. They can also know the sources of the data and even what data has been sold about them. Uh, they can also opt out of uh, the sale of data if they're adults. And for children, they have a right to opt in. In other words, kids under the age of 16 Uh, have a right uh, to give opt-in consent before their data is sold. And then there is a right to access the data, a right to delete the data, and then a right to be free from discrimination or retaliation, really, for exercising any of the other seven rights I just mentioned. So things like special price discounts or, uh, you know, variances in quality of goods that are linked to data, the ability of the consumer to provide consent for the use of their data will be considered uh, discriminatory or retaliatory unless there's some show of the value of the data to the business. So that's where it is right now.
1: And we've certainly had um, plenty of warning and plenty of lead time as uh, CCPA sort of came online and and went into effect. Um, What are we seeing now in terms of uh, people adhering to it?
2: yeah so the big news is that effective july 1st our california attorney general has the legal right and has already begun i understand to begin enforcement and so this was really the key uh, up until between you know january 1st and july 1st there was certainly a state of uh, consumer class actions pu- putative class actions that have been filed about 55 of them related to the CCPA, but for the first time, as of July 1st, the AG, our attorney general, who's the primary enforcer of the CCPA, the entirety of the statute, has the right to begin enforcement. And that appears to be exactly what's uh, taking place right now.
1: Hmm. Uh, Can you give us uh, some examples of the types of things that uh, people are flagging?
2: Yeah, so, you know, I think the June 30th and July 1st press releases from the California Attorney General were very telling. In those, he, he encouraged consumers to exercise their rights to not have their data sold by clicking do not sell links on websites. Of course, the statute requires a do not sell link it, uh, on the homepage of a website, if a company is selling data to provide an opt-out for consumers to opt out of the sale. Now, there are a vast number of businesses for a variety of different reasons who don't believe that, you know, having a cookie on a website constitutes a sale. The AG and a number of consumer groups have different views about that when the cookie can track the consumer across multiple websites that a business does not own. Now,
1: can you remind us what the reaches of this law? For for example, I, I'm I'm here in Maryland. If I'm uh, doing business with a company in California, or if I've got Californians doing business with me, how much uh, do I need to be concerned about this?
2: Yeah, very concerned, uh, actually, because the the statute has extraterritorial reach. In that regard, we're very similar to the General Data Protection Regulation in the EU. So the rights are bestowed on California residents, meaning that wherever California residents are, they do have these rights as long as they are dealing with a business. And the definition of business is in in itself very broad uh, for purposes of the statute. It includes any company that collects personal information from California residents and does business in California. You don't have to have a physical presence, and then you need to have one of the following three things to be a business. In addition, either you have revenues of 25 million or more, or you have uh, you're collecting personal information of 50,000 or more California residents, or you are deriving 50% or more of your revenue from the sale of uh, data of California residents. It doesn't mean that the company has to make that 20 over 25 million in California. That's just, is the company have revenue over 25 million? If it does and it collects personal information in California, it collects personal information of California residents and it does business in California, it will be a business. Uh, Similarly, collecting personal information from 50,000 or more California residents seems like a lot until you think about it this way. Uh, if you have a website and you have 137 visitors to your website every day from California, that will have you hitting the collection of personal information, Mark, for purposes of the statute.
1: Our thanks to Dominique shelton Leipzig for joining us. There's an extended version of our conversation on CyberWire Pro. You can check that out on our website, Cyberwire.com. We're also featuring Dominique shelton Leipzig on an upcoming episode of our Career Notes podcast, So be sure to check that out as well. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security – And joining me once again is Andrea Little-Limbago. She is the Vice President of Research and Analysis at Interos. Uh, It's great to have you back. I I wanted to uh, go on a a little journey with you today and sort of uh, take a a real broad global look at at where we find ourselves uh, when it comes to some of the changes that you're tracking and and when it comes to the policy around the world, when it comes to
0: cybersecurity. What do you suppose a good place to start is? That's a great question because, you know, I feel like we're at a point where things are starting to move really quickly, which, you know, in the policy space, you don't say that very often. Um, Yeah. The way I I look at it currently, and this will, you know, paint sort of a broader picture, you know, there were these trends that were already underway prior to COVID-19, and they Mm. were, and we can address any, any number of these, but new movements towards data storage, less trust towards... Different countries and their and some of their national champions and their their software, internet blackouts, which we've talked about in the past, concerns over yeah. privacy, data stealing, all those kind of things. They were in, they are under you know and starting to you know you know, become quite worrisome in, in different areas. But with COVID nineteen, I feel like so much has been accelerated because of that. As you know, countries mm-hmm. start turning inward. You're starting to see just more tensions are starting to emerge on the geopolitical <laughs> scene, and so that has direct repercussions for what's going on as far as the the broader range of cybersecurity and cyber risk that's going on. And so it's, Mm. the way I think about it, it's almost, you know, COVID was almost a perfect storm where you had sort of this fragile system that was emerging. And with such a big shock to that system, it's just become really, really disruptive. And so that's why you start, you know, know, we've seen, you know, article after article on how there's been just, you know, a string of, you know, ransomware attacks and phishing attacks and so forth, you know, linked to COVID-19 and trying to, Take advantage of people's their their current states and the work from home environment, all that that's going on. And then at the same time, you know, with on the geopolitical scene, you know, the U.S. and China obviously had you know underlying tensions that were already bubbling up there. You had that big trade war and tariff war that was going on there, you know, across almost every issue you can think of. There were different tensions, and those are really just escalating. And we're, we're seeing that play out in a lot of the the restricted entities that are popping mm-hmm. up from the government and. You know, as far as you know, one big trend that I'm looking at that I think was you know, a little bit below the surface prior and is really you know, accelerating, I, I, I look at the restricted entities because I, I think of it almost as uh, you know, similar to the indictments. And if you remember, 2014 was when there were the indictments against five uh, People's Liberation Army members. Right, and right. And that sort of kicked off what we now see in you know, indictments now for cyber, you know, espionage, cyber theft, cyber attacks, however you want to frame it. You know, those are fairly commonplace now. But in 2014, that was a really big deal because that was the very first time that there were indictments against a, another country. And I hmm. feel like we're at a sort of a similar tipping point right now with restricted entities where we're seeing, and it's not just Huawei and ZTE. It's, it, you know, it's, those were, to me, like those are almost the same as the 2014 uh, PL, you know, the 5 PLA, where you know, we're seeing everything from restrictions on software that, include Huawei and ZT, but also extend into a broader range of, of various kinds of tech companies. I mean, it was just uh, last month, yeah, in June, the Pentagon had named 20 different companies with uh, alleged links to PLA. And that's different mm-hmm. than some of the other Department of Commerce, uh, Bureau of Industry and Security. They've designated entities you know, over 30 in the last few weeks. And they have got State Department naming some of them. And so you've got this sort of whole-of-government approach going on that's naming these restricted entities. And I think it just highlights the growing distrust between the two countries. And so that's, to me, is one like just a, a really interesting way to look at how geopolitics is, is directly impacting various components of cybersecurity. And it really is through some of the tech and the, the trusted components that are of both the software and hardware.
1: Well, and, and even we see things like what's going on with TikTok where you have, you know, Australia threatening to ban them, India banning them. And, and uh, you know, starting to to hear people in congress making suggestions that perhaps banning an app like TikTok would be a good thing to do. I mean that's an interesting development.
0: No, I think it it absolutely is. And I think and the great you know why TikTok is such a good example if you actually you know on the one hand, you know I I've, I've got children and we I think I think I just came this one uh, to to take one <laughs> off their phone, you know, yesterday. Well, I'm sure it's already back on because it, it's, it's which gets into how much how integrated it is into their lives, especially for right. for for Gen Z, but you know, India was the first one really to you know to make more of a prominent statement and, and ban it. And I th- think we can't overlook the timing of that, and that there were the, the conflict between the troops between India and China that are still ongoing, but really took off, mm-hmm. you know, a few weeks ago. You know, it's one of those things that, you know, in their terms of service, which are you know, like almost all of them, are you know huge <laughs> and hard to get through and no one's really gonna read them all. Right, but you know, right. buried within there, and you know, basically it does say you know, we're going to take up all you know we're going to be taking you know, a ridiculous amount of data. Yeah, and it and it is. It's I think it'll be interesting to see what happens with that and how much people actually care, and and that's where you get into the you get the security experts talking about it, you get the government worried about it. It'll be interesting to see whether it is something that does actually pervade throughout society or whether it becomes something where certain corporations don't allow it, and that's sort of the angle that we're seeing right now with a couple of different companies have been trying to ban their, their workforce from using it. So we'll, we'll right. see which direction it goes or whether the government will step in and, you know, add it to this, you know, some sort of restricted entity.
1: Yeah, yeah. And how do you get it off all those kids' phones? I
0: know, can you imagine? Really, Exactly. If you he- thought Huawei yeah. was hard to get off, wait till, you- <laughs> wait till you're trying to write of right. TikTok.
1: <laughs> yeah, during, in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, exactly. yeah, luck with that,
0: right? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Andrea a Little Lumbago, thanks for joining us.
0: Thank you so much.
1: And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past.